Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. You've heard of the no-fly list before, no doubt, where people are flagged by the government as potential terror threats and denied their right to travel, whether by air, sea, or land. As with all government programs, this one too is rife with inefficiencies and wrongful accusations, and plenty of innocent people get caught up in the dragnet. Well, now it's time to get ready for the no-buy list. At least that's according to PayPal's co-founder David Sparks, who would know a thing or two about such a list, as it is his former company, PayPal, that is leading the charge in this new form of financial ostracism. PayPal has teamed up with such sensorial mission creepers as the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League to create a list of individuals it wants banned from their payment platform. Other fintech companies are expected to follow suit. Now, what gets you on such a list, you might be wondering? To whom do you address concerns for redress? What precedents are being set, dangerous or otherwise? And perhaps more importantly, what will become of the hordes of people denied not just a voice, but potentially their livelihood too? As they are increasingly marginalized, are they likely to become radicalized? And might that not drive them to vote for exactly the kind of authoritarian you wouldn't want in charge of such dangerous Orwellian architecture in this age of permission-based living? To discuss all that, I'm joined by the Bonner Denning Letters co-author, Dan Denning, as we talk about privacy, censorship, and the long arm of government, working hand in glove with big tech, and now fintech too, to suppress dissent, silence opposing voices, and punish non-compliance. We'll have all that and plenty more in today's conversation with Dan Denning, up next. Dan, tell me, I'm super excited to know you've been engrossed in the, <laughs> you've been super engrossed in the Olympics. Now, I have been watching a little bit and uh, like everything else, it, it's uh, like everything else in the culture, they've become a little bit politicized, but I, I do like watching sports and I, I used to like watching the Olympics because I think there's something, um, there is something genuinely inspiring or enthralling or entertaining about watching people amateur athletes who've trained their whole life to get to a moment and to see some people embrace that moment and do something incredible that, that we can't do. And, and inevitably, you know, there's someone who doesn't win. We don't call them a loser anymore. We call them second place or third place, but I do watch that. Um, I, I enjoy the, the amateurs more than the professionals who get paid millions of dollars. And then they go over. I, I do like it though, that, you know, playing for your country, uh, mm-hmm. still matters to some people and and i don't like the metal tables and this ridiculous tally keeping on whether china or the u.s is the more 
I mean, they're both huge countries with huge athletic talent bases, but also as an Australian uh, citizen, you know, Australia punches well above its weight, uh, especially in swimming, which makes sense since, you know, surrounded by an ocean, it's shores are, <laughs> shores are girt by sea, as the anthem says. Indeed. So, uh, you know, they're good. They're good competitions to watch, but um, the time difference makes it hard to, to keep up with it. But um, it's one of those where after dinner for an hour or two, I'll watch. And I, I am a sucker for that. I have to say, I don't know if I'm, I'm overly emotional, but they do a great job of manufacturing the human element of the story and it's it's really hard not to be excited and happy for people who do who've worked very hard to achieve something and and then become the best in the world at it so i, I do like that yeah i like that you're that you're, you're hedging your bets with the dual uh, passports there i'm hoping that you are aware of course that uh, as a a bearer of an australian passport you're now obliged by the australian government to cheer for the australian swimming team that's part of Part of your uh, of conditional your travel rights are conditional on your your continued uh, you know chest thumping for for Australia and can be revoked actually. Well, which, which was would a, mean a, which would mean something if the Australian passport was good for travel uh, at the moment, which it is not. <laughs> I was going to say I was I'm not planning on going there anytime soon this year anyway, I, and I was unaware that that was an additional restriction on um, <laughs> your permission to travel. But uh, you know, more seriously, it. It's a weird, it's a weird uh, uh, situation where you've got athletes who've traveled from all over the world to Japan, which has the largest population of people over 100 years old per capita in the world. So you'd think highly, highly vulnerable to transmissions of of uh, infectious diseases, especially respiratory diseases. But that's happening, you know. That so all these people have come to compete in the Olympics, but yet. Uh, it, all across Australia and all across the United States now, there's this invasive level of uh, of government surveillance over what you're permitted to do and how whether you have to wear a mask or or in New York City with the communist Mayor De Blasio, whether you have to show a vaccine passport. So you know, I, I would say that it's a, it's cognitive dissonance dissonance to see the Olympics, a worldwide event, being conducted at the same time that all over the world there's been really a, a, a huge acceleration since the last time we talked in requiring people seek permission to do things. And that's, uh, that's alarming. Yeah. So uh, I want to get uh, into no fly lists and, and no buy lists we're, we're going to talk about too, but um, maybe a jumping off point for that is a subject that you and I have been talking about in private a little bit of late. And I, something I know you've been writing about for many years and that's the the moment when our corporate overlords achieve something comparable to the kind of power that our um our state overlords have enjoyed um and abused for for many years um and this was kind of highlighted in recent times where in or, or just in this earnings season actually when the so-called fangman's stocks uh achieved a combined market cap something in the vicinity of $10 trillion, uh, which just for context is roughly the combined GDP of Japan, Russia, and Germany. Um, so if we think about, yeah, again, all the natural resources that are, are under those particular um, particular countries, uh, all the outstanding bonds, all of the, you know, everything that these countries have contributed to, uh, to history and culture. Um, first of all, what, what do you make of, of that 
cold kind of reality in 2021. And in particular, uh, the speed at which those companies, some of which didn't even exist two decades ago or even 10 years ago, um, the speed at which they've achieved that level of power and, uh, and dominance in, in our lives. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, the earnings season was just a blowout. It was a huge success for those companies. You know, I think the five of them, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, uh, reported a combined something like almost $70 billion in profit. And they saw, you know, huge explosion in sales. And, uh, you know, all of that made sense, particularly in the context of the pandemic. And in fact, I think the earnings season from the second quarter was directly related to the pandemic. So, you know, Google and Surge, Amazon and retail. Amazon disappointed a little bit, but it had had a good year last year. Facebook and social. Um, so Microsoft with cloud computing and Apple with devices. Uh, that's a combination of, of the pandemic plus the winner-take-all nature of the network effect that in their respective businesses, those companies are dominant and they're very difficult to compete with. So that's all normal, like that we've seen that before. And normally what you see is competition and, you know, the famous expression from Joseph Schumpeter of creative destruction. That's what we're not seeing though, that the, the, the financial success of those companies uh, has enabled them to build big moats around their businesses. And uh, for investors in those companies, it's probably been great because <laughs> they've, they've been just outstanding investments. But the, um, the difficulty now, I think, is, the, uh, is more political and social that, um, and this is also in response to the pandemic, that uh, on social media, the companies have become the de facto enforcers of a government speech code about what is and isn't true. So you have this ridiculous fact-checking industry, and then you have censorship being done by private companies, which most of us would agree they're they're not obligated to publish anybody, but they're enforcing uh, the orthodoxy of the establishment, which is often determined by the CDC, the FBI, government regulators. So we've had, we've crossed into this uh, weird thing where you have a fascist relationship. So you have corporations working hand in hand with the government to promote the agenda of bigness. Uh, but it also feels very communistic in the sense that it's not national socialism. These aren't, it's a globalist agenda. Uh, and that's probably the bigger context is we, there's so much collectivization now in the technology industry and in communications and in commerce that uh, it's rewarding bigness. So an example would be here in the state of Colorado in order to encourage people, the vaccine reluctant uh, to, to get vaccinated uh, the state of Colorado, at the behest of the federal government, is offering people $100 gift cards to Walmart per shot. And so they're not giving them to mom and pop stores or the local coffee store or the five and dime or the bakery or whatever. They're rewarding, you know, the world's largest retailer. So, so uh, we've got we've got some problems with centralization and uh, it, it, it leads to a whole nother set of questions. But so to answer your question from a financial point of view, it makes a lot of sense. The result that they have um, from from a whether it's good point of view, I would say it's not. Uh, but for investors, you've got to be loving it. I would point this out, though, that the S&P 500 has not had a 1% correction in 183 trading days. So uh, we are overdue 
or at least a 1%, maybe 5% correction. Excuse me, I think that's 5% is what I meant. But uh, it's weird. The, the worse things get and the more dystopian they feel in the real world, the better it seems to get for Wall Street. Yeah, and we do live, of course, in an era where politicians um, you know, like to cite uh, the, the stock market as a kind of barometer for health, even though that's not something that's enjoyed flatly across the, across the population. Um, it's obviously enjoyed by politicians <laughs> who yeah. have, uh, you know, some meaningful portion of their, of their assets tied up in the financial economy, but it does bring into question, you mentioned the fascistic kind of hand in glove, um, you know, symbiotic relationship between these private enterprises effectively doing the bidding of their their kind of puppeteers in congress and this that's kind of the sticking point i think because you know whether however much you go along with the charade of of democracy at least people know um what they don't know (laughs) or rather you know that there's there's a system set up in place and you know whether you you think it's as as churchill mentioned the worst form of of government except for all the ones previous to it. You know, we, we all kind of know where everyone stands. Um, we know where, you know, we're supposed to write our congressmen for redress or we, we go to the ballots if we're unhappy with the, way, with the way that things are being governed. But it does bring up the, uh, you know, the issue of to whom do you address your letter of concern when you get put on a no-fly list or, or, or a no-buy list, as we'll talk about in a second, when, you know, when there is just this nameless, faceless kind of, conglomerate um out there which you know may certainly may not have your best interests at hand or in mind yeah well, I, I think there's there's two problems that you bring up one is it's hard to tell who the puppet is and who the puppeteer is so it, it reminded me of the the famous drawing by mc escher of the hand drawing the hand which is uh you know i think the scientific name would be recursion but the idea is who's really in charge here? Is it is it the millennials at Twitter and Facebook who are flagging things as uh, mostly false, unfactual, or hate speech? Or is it the people in Congress encouraging them to do it? Is it the companies who are, who are contributing billions of dollars to the re-election campaigns of committee chairs in the House and Senate? Or is it the CE, you know, is it the, is it the committee chairs who are calling the shots? It's a bit of both. There's some collaboration there, uh, which is mutually beneficial. But I think the other uh, issue is that's just people, and people are always going to be subject to corruption, bribery, arrogance. That's cyclical. We're, you know, this isn't new in human history. What is new is that the decisions might be being made by algorithms. Now, algorithms are are computer programs that are, you know, written by a human being to produce an outcome or a decision to make the decision making easier. But if you get on the wrong list. Or if, if a social credit score like they have in China it is automated and it's some combination of uh, speech that is deemed hateful, racist, or extremist, plus you integrate financial behavior based on where you're spending your money, then all of a sudden it's, it's more like a Philip K. Dick thing where it's, uh, it's not a person making the decision. It's a machine. Uh, or an algorithm. And in that case, you're screwed because once you're on the list, how, how do you get off the list? Uh, but the, I think the, the thing that's important now is that those lists are being made. Yeah, uh, and, the, yeah. and the very, you know, um, the, the, 
that one distinction is vaccinated versus unvaccinated, but this binary way of of putting people into camps, so to speak, <laughs> where, which camp are you in or which camp will you be in if you don't comply? Um, you know, w- w- that was considered hyperbolic a year ago or conspiracy theorist or kind of a fever, feverish response to a public policy. And what surprised me since the last time we talked, Joel, is how quickly that's become, well, maybe it's time to discuss what we should do with these uncompliant people. Uh, and you know, history tells us that that's a complete train wreck for civilization when the public discourse turns into that. What's just weird about it is, is that, uh, like you said, the stock market continues to, to perform extremely well, but even that's not completely unrelated. So just as a, an example, I saw that a negative yielding debt globally is now close to $7 trillion, $17 trillion again. The high before was 18 or 29 trillion of that is in Europe. But that's mostly government bonds. So the entirety of the German yield curve from you know, 90 days to 30 years it now it is negative yielding debt in nominal terms, or sorry, in real terms. So you know, governments are, are using financial repression, which is what we've talked about before, to finance these deficits. So they're extremely powerful right now. And the financial system enables that, and technology helps them assert and enforce that authority. And uh, that's creating a real dilemma for people like you and me who want to live and travel in the world and but but remain financially free and politically free because it's forcing us to make decisions not only about what we want to do with our money or what we think money is, but also wh- where we want to be or where we're even allowed to be, which is right. uh, which is a new thing. Yeah, and it's interesting to think as you as you mentioned there in an in an era of of cheap money and um, and and you know high flying um, stock valuations, we it's easy for government to you know kind of pass through these or rather set precedents for these kinds of restrictions, these you know censorship measures and stuff. But it gets you know the the question begs itself when governments are really desperate when you know when interest rates kick up and, and, and when the noose tightens around their neck what kind of authoritarianism they might be tempted to to enact but just uh, on your on your point before about um, flagging speech and you mentioned you know indeed how quickly this discussion has become normalized uh, you know people would have noticed um, the White House press secretary, Jenny Psaki just kind of casually dropped into a news conference the other day that the White House is the quote was flagging and reporting misinformation, um, which you know might sound like okay, we're just going after um, you know people who who spread harmful um, you know to their definition misinformation that that might be you know detrimental to society at large. But when you when you start to to introduce terminology with such loose and broad definitions, you set up precedents that, you know, that may be very, very troublesome in the future. And, and another thing she mentioned in that comment was that, um, you know, she betrayed the fact that the White House looks like they are keeping some kind of some kind of list of of people that with whom they disagree, but then also was pressuring um, the those big tech providers to ban people across platforms. Um, and we saw that, of course, with with Parler, which was, you know, the one platform that didn't um, ban the former president. All the other, you know, Amazon and Google and all the rest of them got together and then 
as it, as it were, deplatformed parlor. So the 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 chokehold is is tightening on people that don't, um, you know, that don't kind of toe the line with the accepted narrative. Which I think for a lot of people, you know, they look at you know groups like you know it'll be the KKK or some kind of you know um, you know child trafficking ring or something that everybody can get behind and say yes that is wrong. But that's oftentimes the thin edge of the wedge when you start introducing such broad terms as hate speech or misinformation. Well, according to whom? And then when you have somebody in power with with whom you disagree, um, an autocrat, when when they have the power of those precedents behind them, then things can get ugly pretty quickly. Yeah, well, there's no recourse for the uh, for the powerless. The powerful are setting the rules and. Excuse me. I'll give another example of, uh, for one, I I will say this. uh, Social media has made it possible to practice information warfare on uh, an unprecedented level. And there's no doubt that that's happening. Like uh, one example is the number of uh, word for word posts that are identical about nurses or ER um, workers saying it was the worst day, whatever. If you, if you go on Twitter, you'll find <coughs> excuse me, that uh, there are uh, there's there are concerted campaigns to use social media to advance a narrative. Who's behind that is not entirely clear, but I would suggest everybody's behind it, uh, from non-state actors to uh, government intelligence agencies to corporations who are trying to shape the narrative about what's going on in the world. So, so this debate about what is, is, and is not true and what is, and is not a misinformation is, is evidence that there's, there's an active campaign about who gets to decide what a fact is and what true is. And I think my view like yours would be just super dangerous territory when the government uh, is saying, okay, as Jacinda Ardern said in New Zealand, we were the sole mm-hmm. source of truth on this. Because <laughs> you'd have other people saying, well, you know, you're the primary source of disinformation and misinformation. Mm-hmm. The same people who dropped Agent Orange and ran the Tuskegee experiments, which were run by the CDC, you know. Uh, it, but now they can memory hole all that. So I think that that aspect of what's going on is, uh, is really dangerous right now. And I don't know... Um, you know, it, it, for us, I suppose it, it means you've got to be really careful and discriminating about what you believe and what you find and be be very skeptical of everything that you read. But um, it's just a it's a bit astonishing how quickly and forcefully it's happened. And to me, that suggests that uh, either by accident or by design, there are people who are running with it and saying, let's let's. Let's use this to do as much as we can. And this financial aspect of it is is that the financial aspect is that the stock market is the circus. If the bread is unemployment benefits or UBI or mortgage moratorium, so that the middle class and, and the 50% of people who make less than $50,000 a year, those people need financial sustenance because they can't work or the government's going to keep paying them not to work or there's going to be another lockdown. The circus is the stock market where through the wealth effect, the people who can afford to do this, who can work from home, Zoom from home, they're entertained by how wealthy they're getting during the whole thing. So, you know, from the big picture point of view, it confirms what what Bill Bonner always talks about, that these are all symptoms of a civilization that is in uh, 
chronic decline or acute decline and it may not you know may not look like it's happening fast but it but actually it's happening faster than i thought was possible yeah and i think one of those one of the easiest mental exercises to do when uh, you know, when just kind of internalizing and conceptualizing the the censorship question um, is to imagine the opposition in power telling you what you can or cannot say. So if you're a Biden supporter, imagine Trump, you know, having the on off switch to your public uh, or, or rather digital public life. Um, and then, uh, you know, the converse um, as well for Trump supporters that are now going through this with Biden and and the present administration deciding what is and isn't hate speech, what is and isn't misinformation, et cetera. So it's easy to go along with with your team when they're in charge, but uh, just imagine the opposition in charge and then and then that becomes difficult. But <clears throat> to the point of accelerating decline uh, that you mentioned there, there was an interesting story the other day that, that, um, that you and I shared, which I think illustrates this ex- escalation or ex- and or acceleration uh, pretty well. And it was... It was written by a fellow David Sachs, who was co-creator uh, of PayPal and invested in a bunch of these companies that we're talking about, Facebook, Uber, Reddit, you know, all the usual suspects. And he highlighted something that I thought was really interesting. And it took this whole discussion from, I say mere, but from censorship of, of speech and opinions um, and what you are and are not allowed to, to say and share online to what he called the no buy list. Uh, and I thought this was really interesting. So <clears throat> essentially what it is, is PayPal now, and uh, Mr. Sachs uh, thinks that uh, other fintech companies will soon follow suit here, are getting together with uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League and you know other, other groups like this to essentially compile lists of, you know, people with whom it's it more than strongly disagrees, and and people that it wants to um, that it wants to ban from using their services. So we're not now just talking about people who are unable to, you know, post an opinion online or share a story uh, that doesn't jive with with the accepted narrative, but but people we're now talking about the the um, you know, the banning of people's ability to participate in the financial economy, to transact, to conduct business, to contract with other, um, you know, with other people. And I feel like this is the next step to ostracize, you know, the, the quote unquote, great unwashed, whomever's defining that, uh, that group. But this, this gets to, I think, you, you know, something like the, the rubber meeting the road for real and meaningful um, ostracization of, of that group. What, what's your. Yeah. Well, I was going to mention that earlier and I got distracted by some other point I was making, but you, you, you successfully brought it back to a more important point that, (laughs) that, uh, that, uh, I saw someone on Twitter mention it. I don't remember who it was, but he said, look, and he was referring just to the requirement, uh, for proof of vaccination in New York city. He's saying participating in civil society is becoming a subscription only experience. And in order to get the subscription, you have to, in this case, uh, be, become vaccinated or, or prove that you've been vaccinated or, or, or some, something like that. But it's, it's broader than that, as you said, because um, the enforcement of noncompliance is 
is to be uh, excluded from participating in not just civil society, but normal economic life. And so, um, you know, PayPal or uh, other banks might, might do the same and say, look, you can't, we can't approve that transaction because something you said. Uh, so it's, it becomes a giant exercise, a giant forceful exercise in behavior modification and enforced compliance. And compliance with what is the question? So mm. right now, the compliance is with your vaccine, your vac- vaccination status. But in theory, it could be, are you, are you sufficiently anti-racist? Have you demonstrated that you're anti-racist? Did you pass your anti-racist test this month? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it that you're saying online? So I agree with you that when people talk about it merely as an enforcement of a speech code, they generally don't get that worried about it because they say, well, I'm not on Twitter or I'm not on Facebook and I'm not an extremist. So it doesn't apply to me. It only applies to racists and white supremacists and anti-Semites and whatever. So it doesn't occur to them that it might apply to people who eat too many carbs or people who smoke too much or people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. drive too much, you know, who, who are uh, who are contributing to the climate crisis with irresponsible personal driving behavior. You know, the point is, once you concede the principle and once the, the architecture, the technology of the enforcement is in place to monitor behavior, which which most of which is now digital, then um, then then pretty much anything can be restricted prohibited or, 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 or ratioed or quarantined. And the big step in that, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the other thing. It's, it's like what Heinlein said, everything that isn't uh, prohibited is compulsory. The very binary world, you either must not Mm -hmm. do it or you have to do it. But the most important component of enforcing that is the digitization of every single economic transaction, because then it inserts uh, a permission to whether the transaction can go forward. So instead of being a voluntary transaction between two parties, which is, is settled with a bearer instrument like cash, it's a central bank digital currency. Uh, and that's why you've seen that conversation accelerated. So for example, the Fed's Lael Brainerd used this stupid phrase, which I'm so tired of hearing. It's like moving forward, but it's this idea of sustainable future, which which has, has gone from being about... Uh, natural resource depletion and, 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 and closed ecosystems about what's actually physically possible to this blanket term about, well, we don't want to do that anymore. So we're going to say it's not sustainable behavior. But what she was saying is that she didn't see that it was possible for, for China and the Communist Party of China to have a central bank digital currency and for the private ecosystem of either crypto coins or stable coins, which are backed by government money, to develop and be used as payments and for the Fed not to have one. And the phrase she used, and I wrote it down here somewhere so I can find it. She said, um, uh, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it? A safe government-backed settlement asset. That's how she mm. described mm-hmm. a central bank digital, as if it were not possible to have right. to have a healthy, thriving economy. And so I, I think that all of these things have now converged. And what's shocking is how, how quickly the centralizers, the totalitarians, the sociopaths, the authoritarians, and the communists who are basically rife in uh, in Washington and New York and Hollywood are going for the kill. They really are going for the kill socially and financially. And that's why the people I follow on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook anymore, haven't been for two years. I don't use LinkedIn. 
people are now deciding, is it time for me to move to Latin America? Should I go to Wyoming? What? And, and actually, there was a Gallup poll recently that showed the, the support for secession in certain parts of the United States is increasing because mm. of this, because of the rhetoric to describe behavior that used to be just a dif- difference of agreement, but now is being described as both extremist and dangerous and a, a public health hazard and, and requires forcible government mandates or intervention to modify. Yeah, well, that's it's really interesting that you that you mentioned that because I, I wanted to read something that uh, Mr. Sparks his conclusion um, in this this particular column. And I'll link to it below because I, I thought it was it it was a it was a good appeal to both um, you know just to to cool heads uh, across the board here. And he he writes, um, if you really believe our democracy barely survived it a stress test these last several years, and you don't wish to subject it to another, the last thing you should do is create hordes of desperate people denied a voice and a livelihood and primed to be rallied to a future autocrat's cause. And you, that should that should speak to people across the political spectrum who <clears throat> stand for liberalism in the sense of you know, free and open discussion of ideas, uh, free and open... Um, you know, a free and open press, um, you know, freedom of speech, free, everything that, that's, um, that's, you know, kind of encapsulated in the First Amendment. Um, what we're doing, I feel like, by depriving, you know, certain uh, unwashed um, sections of, of the economy and of society, um, when we're condemning them to this kind of ostracism, what we're really doing is creating the... Um, all the ingredients for a future revolution or the rise of a future autocrat. And if, and if, you know, for people who thought that they've already seen that uh, coming from someone who lives now in South America, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet because there's a lot to uh, can get a lot worse. <laughs> well, I think I, you know, there's, there's optimism and then there's cause of for pe- pessimism. And, and, and for me, the optimism is that most Americans in America in general is not a uh, intemperate society when it comes to, calling for more authoritarian control, that it's generally still in most places live and let live and left to its own devices. And because it's still more or less a federal system and there are 3,000 different counties with different local government structures, it's it's hard to enforce central uh, control and to promote a central narrative. But we know from the history of revolutions that they're generally they do happen at the margin and that the violent revolutionaries who who want to overthrow an existing political order are not new they're not numerous they're not ever the majority numerically they're small but they use two things as as force multipliers in the past they've used one thing as a force multiplier and that's gunpowder you can use violence and the destruction you know anarchy bombing assassinations those can be used to um, to accelerate a system and put it into crisis. What's happening today is not that. So we, we don't see the, the violence is all on, on the side of the state. Mostly the state is using violence to keep people in their house, to arrest them, to silence them. But the force multiplier for the revolutionary elements in the West are, are from the media and it's technology and social media is the force multiplier. So what's happening is a small group of people who I believe are dedicated revolutionaries, including BLM, the uh, Black Lives Matter, the people who started that 
effort. And then there are people, especially in academia, who have found their way into Washington, D.C. They work Mm -hmm. for the federal government uh, or people who are in uh, the media and in Hollywood. They're able to create the impression that there's a groundswell of support for these ideas. And their, their goal is the destruction of the free market, voluntary, live and let live, liberal system that that you just described. They do want to overthrow that, but they just haven't been transparent about their motives. Uh, And so they see this as a chance to to accomplish what they didn't accomplish in the Cold War, what the Soviet Union couldn't accomplish in a a war of ideas between governments, they can accomplish from within the culture. And, uh, you know, I think people have to decide whether they're going to, when they believe that, whether they find that that's an accurate description of what's going on, and then two, whether they're willing to to uh, to speak out against it. And in our view, you know, because we're not counter revolutionaries, our view has always been that the best way to safeguard your your liberty and your family's freedom and and your own freedom and your wealth is is to make sure that you know you're financially independent because that gives you a lot of of tools that other people don't have. But I think you're absolutely right that that. Uh, a lot of people will be radicalized by what's going on uh, who otherwise would not have been radicalized. And you can't control that. It's like we talk about with central banks when we create all this liquidity. You never know where it's going to go, but you know that it's going to create a bubble somewhere. But when you create all this financial insecurity and you start to introduce the idea of a financial lockdown where you're going you're gonna to police people's behavior individually based on whether they're compliant with your political beliefs, that's fine when you're in charge. What happens is the most violent people migrate to the top, and they're not concerned about political beliefs. They're concerned about power. So sooner or later, you're going to be in their crosshairs. And I think the people cheering most loudly for for these measures of control now either completely know what they're talking about and believe that it should happen or have no idea what they're talking about, and they'll be the victims next time. So it's a really dangerous, dangerous moment for the country right now. Yeah, it reminds me. It reminds me that your last sentiment there of the of the French Revolution, where it, you know it was Robespierre and the Jacobins' heads that were on pikes very shortly after the revolution that they, um, you know, that they helped usher in. So, so please don't don't let's delude ourselves that any of us are safe from the monsters that that we create. Um, so, mate, just very finally, and I, I know you've got to get going here, but um, is this, you know, as we talk about, um, you know, central bank digital currencies and and the kind of mission creep of of this, um, whatever this fascistic symbiosis between government and big tech and now fintech, whatever that looks like, is does this to you make the case for um, something like? Um, free market digital currencies, or is it, I mean, this is obviously in some ways a direct attack on on that space. Um, you know, where, where do you stand on on things like um, anonymous coins and and those kinds of digital assets being some kind of escape route here? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I, I don't think uh, so. I, I would cite that uh, story that broke last week about the. It was dubbed the Pegasus Project, and it was a it was a collaborative project between a lot mm-hmm. of different uh, news gathering journalistic organizations who were reporting on uh, sort of a hack for hire uh, ecosystem of companies that were selling off the shelf tools to hack into encrypted 
applications on your mobile phone. So they would either take over the whole phone, but they were designed to hack into your WhatsApp conversations, Gmail signal, Facebook messenger, whatever. And a lot of the people running those companies were former intelligence officials and were sort of moving back and forth between different national governments and, and corporations. And, you know, the best case scenario after reading that to me was that you'd get a kind of arms race in the private sector between companies that sell tools to hack your phone and companies that, that sell encrypt, encryption tools to make your communication safer. That would be the best case scenario that, uh, that for every problem, someone's out there trying to make it harder to do that. Uh, and I think that that might happen. Uh, and I hope that that happens because otherwise you're just going to have to assume that privacy is long gone, not just recently, but, but a long time ago is from what we're finding out. But when it comes to money, I think, uh, I think that uh, the government, uh, governments and central banks are embracing certain aspects of encryption and blockchain as long as they have full transparency. So <laughs> in fact, they're, they're not embracing the encryption at all. They're saying, we love the transparency of, of a ledger, which shows everything you've done with your money. We'll take that and, and then we'll make you use it. We'll designate that as the only legal tender. So I saw a story about a raid in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, where the FBI and different government agencies had come down really, really hard on a community that I think it's Keene, New Hampshire, where they had tried to create a sort of Bitcoin crypto economy. And the uh, the response was so draconian and heavy handed that it, it, it really got to the point that the, the government, the sovereign, the issuer of the currency, the state as the issuer of the currency, can't really afford people to think that there are alternatives to it. Because right. once that power goes... That, that is the source of their power, other than the, the barrel of a gun, and guns have to be bought. So um, I think that the more that they're brought into the fold and they're normalized and regulated and the exchanges make their know-your-customer rules visible to the IRS and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and the Treasury, then they will coexist alongside both cash and a central bank digital currency. But any anybody who sets themselves up as a flat-out escape hatch from the financial system as an alternative digital asset uh, uh, or a form of payment that's outside the government system will become the enemy of that system. And whether they survive, I think, depends on how robust network architecture is and whether whether they can be killed. And that's a bigger debate than we have time to get into today. But to me, the, the, uh, the empire is striking back uh, in a big way right now. And it's going to be a big challenge for, for anybody who wants to offer a way out to uh, not get thrown in jail. All right. Word to the wise. Well, let's, let's end on that note. Uh, Dan, mate, thanks so much for your time this morning. Let's you and I catch up again soon. Safe travel, Joel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.